have to take your Bibles and turn over to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Just to give you guys a little heads up, um, we are finishing up Job, I think actually next week. Um, and then this is kind of my last one-off sermon, and then we're diving into the book of 1 Thessalonians, okay? So 1 Thessalonians is our next book. Uh, we'll be going through that all summer, and then uh, probably into the fall as we jump into um, 2 Thessalonians, okay? So a New Testament book this time. That's um, good for us to jump back and forth, all right? So let's stand as we read God's word this morning um, about the early days of Jesus' public ministry, which he continues even to this day. Uh, chapter 2, uh, we're going to read through verse 12. Mark 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered, uh, gathered that there were no room left not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiving, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. You can take a seat. I want to begin by asking a question. Have you ever met someone with authority issues? Have you ever met someone with authority issues, or have you had them yourself? I, uh, I read a story recently uh, that talks a lot about authority issues that I thought I'd begin by sharing with you. It goes like this. In the absence of parental leadership, some children become extremely obnoxious and defiant especially in public places. Perhaps the best example was a 10-year-old boy named Robert who was the patient of my good friend, Dr. William. Dr. William said his pedi uh, pediatric staff dreaded the days when Robert was scheduled for an office visit. He literally attacked the clinic, grabbing instruments and files and telephones. His passive mother could do little more than shake her head in bewilderment. During one physical examination, Dr. William observed several cavities in Robert's teeth and knew that the boy must be referred to a local dentist. But who would be given the honor? A referral like Robert could mean the end of a professional relationship. 
Dr. William eventually decided to send him to an older dentist who reportedly understood children. The confrontation that followed now stands as one of the most classic moments in human history of conflict. Robert arrived in the dental office, prepared for battle. Get in the chair, young man, said the doctor. No chance, replied the boy. Son, I told you to get, climb onto the chair, and that's what I intend for you to do, said the dentist. Robert stared at his opponent for a moment and then replied, If you make me get in that chair, I will take off all my clothes. The dentist said calmly, Son, take them off. <laughs> the boy forthwith removed his shirt, undershirt, shoes, and socks, and then looked up in defiance. All right, son, said the dentist. Now get in the chair. You didn't hear me, sputtered Robert. I said if you make me get on that chair, I will take off all my clothes. Son, take them off, replied the man. Robert proceeded to remove his pants and shorts, finally standing totally naked before the dentist and his assistant. Now, son, get in the chair, the doctor said. Robert did as he was told and sat cooperatively through the entire procedure. When the cavities were drilled and filled, he was instructed to step down from the chair. Give me my clothes now, said the boy. I'm sorry, replied the dentist. Tell your mother that we're going to keep your clothes tonight and she can pick them up tomorrow. <laughs> can you comprehend the shock Robert's mother received when the door of the waiting room opened up and there stood her pink son as naked as the day he was born? The room was filled with patients, but Robert and his mom walked past them into the hall. They went down a public elevator and into the parking lot, ignoring the snickers of the onlookers. The next day, Robert's mother returned to retrieve his clothes and asked to have a word with the dentist. However, she did not come to protest. These were her sentiments. You don't know how much I appreciate what happened here yesterday. You see, Robert has been blackmailing me about his clothes for years. Whenever we are in a public place such as a grocery store, he makes unreasonable demands of me. If I don't immediately buy him what he wants, he threatens to take off all his clothes. You're the first person who has called him on his bluff, doctor, and the impact on Robert has been incredible. Amen. Authority issues. Authority issues. Well, we're going to see today that a group of Jewish leaders similarly had some very big authority issues with Jesus. And Jesus handles this even more brilliantly than the good doctor that we just read about. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus, uh, all we see in the Gospels is that Jesus is ushering in or bringing in his kingdom here on earth. And he's doing that by showing that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so as we look at Mark chapter 2, we're going to see that he brings in his kingdom by bringing spiritual healing and physical healing. And we're also going to look at the opposition to both of those from these Jewish leaders. So first look with me as Jesus brings spiritual healing. Here we have a story about a man who was paralyzed. We don't know much about him or why he was paralyzed, but we know that he was paralyzed. He could not move himself, but he had four friends, good friends, who would come and carry this bed so that he could get before Jesus. With great determination and faith, he thought, if I could just get before Jesus, his friends thought that if we could just get our friend before Jesus, that Jesus could heal this man of his paralysis. And that's exactly what he did. 
It didn't matter that there were tons of people already in this house where Jesus was preaching the word. It didn't matter that there was no physical way to get into that house before Jesus. The four friends were determined. And so they went up on the roof, started digging down through all the dirt and the thatch and the the beams there so that they could lower this paralytic man in front of Jesus. They embodied the the saying, where there is a will, there there is a way, right? Where there's a will, there is a way. They were going to get this man before Jesus no matter what. And verse 5 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Think about that. Son, your sins are forgiven. The guy's coming down out of the ceiling. Son, your sins are forgiven. What's going on there? You can imagine... The confusion of the friends and the paralyzed man. Like, Jesus, don't you see the real problem here? The real problem is that this man is paralyzed. Why are we talking about forgiving his sins? He needs to be healed from the paralysis. That's that's why we brought him to you. That's why we went through all of this trouble. Why are we bringing up the forgiveness of sins? See, oftentimes we act the same way, don't we? We come to God when we have serious medical issues, right? When something's not working right in our bodies, we turn to God. Or when we have money problems, we can't pay the bills. We come to God because we need his help to pay the bills. Or maybe when our kids go off the rail, they're just disobeying left and right, being defiant. We don't know what to do. We come to God. Or maybe when we want, we're lonely and we want a friend or a spouse or any other number of day-to-day problems. And no doubt that these are good things, good gifts that God wants to provide for us and help us with at the right time. But there's a problem here with priorities that Jesus attacks. Jesus says, no, you actually have a priority problem. See, too often we think that these problems, our health or our finances, or problems with our kids, or our spouses, or our medical issues, whatever they may be, we tend to think that these problems are the biggest problem in our life. We tend to think that they're the most pressing issue going on in our little world. That's what needs to be fixed, we say. We say, if God could just give me X, Y, or Z, I will be okay. I will have the good life that I so want to have. And yet something's missing here. Jesus points that out with that simple statement, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says you have a priority problem. See, Jesus saw through the surface need and he went to the deeper need. He said, you've got a problem much bigger than you can't walk. You have a problem much bigger than the paralysis that you experience. It's like a doctor who tells you the tiredness and the weakness you're feeling is not the real problem. There really is actually a deeper problem. That that deeper problem is cancer. Your biggest problem now is not that you feel tired, not that you can't get up and have the energy to work or take your kids to school. The biggest problem is that you have cancer. It goes from the surface need to the deeper need. 
the real need before us. What Jesus is essentially telling the paralytic and what he tells you and me today is that no matter what is happening in our lives, no matter what problems we're facing, there's no worse problem than our sin problem. There's no worse problem than our sin problem. That is our biggest problem. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says this, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All over the Bible, it tells us that we have a sin problem bigger than any other problem that you and I face. If we think that Jesus came just to make our life better, to give us the life that we've always wanted, then we're mistaken. If we think that our greatest need right now is a job that has the right hours for us, or a husband or a wife that will help with our loneliness, or your kids stop disobeying is the biggest problem, it's not. Your greatest need and my greatest need is for the forgiveness of sins. It always has been that. It always will be that. The forgiveness of sins before a perfect and holy God who must punish sin because he is absolutely holy. And we are utterly sinful. See, Jesus didn't come to earth just to be a glorified Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz kind of wowing people by the healing of their little problems. He came to show us that he is God. He came to show us that he is bringing a kingdom that nobody can stop. He came to show us that he is on a rescue mission to save sinful people from their sin and to restore them back to a right relationship with God, their creator. I wonder if we came this morning just to get Maybe an emotional pick-me-up or some help with our little problems in life. But I hope that through Mark 2 that we would leave with so much more. But Returning to the story here in Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus doesn't just bring that spiritual healing. There's something really important for us not to miss. He brings physical healing. See, sometimes it might be easy for us to gloss over the fact that Jesus actually healed the paralytic, especially in our circles sometimes. Verse 11 says, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. See, sometimes we might look at this story and say, you know, because the main point of this story is who has the authority to forgive sins, then the physical healing really isn't all that important. Or it's really not about this physical healing. And to a large degree, it's right for us to say that the main point of this story is about who has the authority to forgive sins. But at the same time, we need to realize that Jesus is actually doing something here. He's bringing his kingdom and he's showing us he's bringing his kingdom by healing this paralytic. Let's not forget what Jesus is doing in his short public ministry on earth. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is Jesus doing? Everything that Jesus does on earth is a part of bringing in his kingdom. Whether it's spiritual healing or physical healing or his teaching or anything else that he did. He was ushering in, bringing in the kingdom of God. Every healing, every teaching, every miracle, every act of mercy is reversing the curse of sin. He is showing us what it will be like one day when he does this fully in heaven. We talked about even in prayer time how we so long for Jesus to return and to make all things new. But we need to remember that he's doing that right now. He's doing that in our lives bit by bit. The healing of the paralytic, even if it's not the main point of this story, is an important way that Jesus is bringing about the kingdom of God. Listen to this quote. I think it captures this well for us. It is rather that both sin and disease are harmful to and destructive of human life. And Christians are called to oppose everything which threatens full humanity and to do so in the name of the kingdom of God. Evangelism, social caring, justice issues, bodily health, ecological concern, racial harmony, affirmation of women as well as men in our society are all issues for the Christian. To limit our perspective is to miss the point of the message and to fight only half-heartedly for the kingdom in the struggle against evil. So does Jesus care about our physical problems that have been plaguing us for months? Yes, he does. Does Jesus care about our kids' rebellion? That we just can't seem to get anywhere with our kids? Yes, he cares. Does Jesus care about our feeling lonely and wanting a spouse or wanting a friend? Yes, he cares. Does Jesus have the ability to solve all of these problems? Yes, he does. Does Jesus always solve these problems immediately when we ask? Not always. Sometimes the answer is not now. Sometimes the answer is not yet. I hope you see what I'm trying to get at here. What I believe the Bible is trying to teach us, that God can and does heal the paralytic to give us a picture of what the kingdom of God actually is and what it looks like. It wasn't the biggest problem that the paralytic had, but it was a problem nonetheless. And Jesus healed that problem. See, we know that you and I have similar minor problems, right? Minor in comparison to our sin. They seem big, and they are big. They're very serious at times. We have these minor problems, but we need to know that Jesus, he can forgive our sin, which is our greatest problem. He can surely help our marriage that's on the rocks. He can surely help us to learn how to budget our money so that we can pay for our bills. He can surely help us find the job that we need to provide for our kids. If he can do the greatest thing, then what's the littlest thing to him? Amen? question is, do we believe that he is good and that he does good? Do we believe it? Do we fight to believe it? In those times that we are struggling with unbelief, that we are struggling with a lack of faith, we have to cry out, God, help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. 
like the man once prayed in one of the Gospels. Well, the story continues on in Mark chapter 2, and we see this opposition to Jesus. This opposition to Jesus, which is our third and our final point here in this text. See, one thing's very clear as we read the Gospels. That where there is Jesus, there is opposition. Where Jesus is preaching, where Jesus is teaching, where he is healing, there is opposition. A lot of people did not like Jesus. And where the gospel is being preached and the kingdom of God is advancing, there is opposition. There are naysayers and there are haters. Jesus told us to expect this. He told his disciples to expect this on earth. He told us as his disciples now to expect that there will be opposition to his kingdom. There will be suffering on this earth as we live faithfully for him. And here, as he heals the paralytic in Mark 2, it's no different. Jesus, now having forgiven the man of his sins, faces opposition. Turn with me to verse 6 again. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? See, what we have going on here is that there's a group of people called the scribes. In another translation, it says the teachers of the law. They were the religious elite of the time. Let's just say they knew their Bibles inside and out. They had a serious and immediate problem with Jesus saying that he could forgive this man's sins. When he said, your sins are forgiven, a red flag went up in their mind saying, uh-oh, there's a problem. Only God alone can forgive our sins. And to a large degree, they were right. They knew their Bibles and that God alone could forgive sin. So where did they mess up? And, and why was Jesus calling them out? Well, a lot of us know that the awful error that the scribes and indeed that the Jews made was assuming that Jesus wasn't God. That Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the one that had been foretold all throughout the Old Testament that would come and pay for our sins. They looked at him and they saw another prophet or another man or another good teacher. See, the main issue for the scribes was who can forgive sins? Who has the authority to forgive sins? And now, as we already seen, Jesus is going to show them that he is God and that he has the authority to forgive sins. But how does he do this? Well, first, he gives them an obvious clue by reading the thoughts and the intentions of their mind. Notice there that the, the scribes didn't say anything. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking without them having to verbalize it. And he called them out immediately. See, you would think that that would give them a clue that Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He could read their minds. But Jesus goes and takes a more obvious and visual approach, one that would be harder to deny. To not just tell them he has the authority, but then to actually go and show them he has that authority. Verse 9 says, which is easier, 
to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now think about that question, which is easier? That kind of made me scratch my head at first. What does Jesus mean, which is easier? He's, he's God, right? Shouldn't both of those be easy to forgive sins and to say to the, the paralytic, son, your sins are, are, um, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now rise, take up your mat and go home. Both of those are easy for Jesus to do. But remember what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to show these scribes that he has the authority to forgive sins. So this is what I think is going on here. I think he's saying that it's easier to show Jesus' authority by forgiving the man's sins than healing because the first is greater and shows more authority, right? He shows more power by forgiving his sins than he does healing them. But what's the problem? The scribes won't take that. They reject that. And so he has to go for the more visible, easier miracle. It's kind of a lesser to the greater argument here. One person says it this way. The logic here then is that since Jesus can do the visible miracle, which was to heal the paralytic, it is the evidence that he also has the power to do the invisible miracle, forgive sins. And so Jesus wanted them to know, Jesus wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has the authority to both forgive sins and to heal the paralytic. And he shows them by first healing them. It's kind of the idea that the proof is in the pudding. He says, okay, scribes, if you don't believe me that I can't forgive this man's sin, I'll show you that I have the authority to do that by healing this guy right now. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus shows them that he has the authority. And the crowd stood amazed. The crowd stood amazed saying, we've never seen anything like this. See, on this side of heaven, there's always going to be opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. And that opposition takes all different kinds of forms. Our objections may not be the same as the Jews of Jesus' day, but we have objections to Jesus' authority even today. We may challenge Christ's authority to forgive sins by saying, Who are you, Jesus, to tell me that what I'm doing is sinful? And that I need to be forgiven. You ever said that to God or thought that? Who are you to tell me that I am doing something sinful and need to be forgiven? What if I don't think that the action I'm doing is actually all that bad? What if it doesn't really mean that much to me that I'm doing this or doing that that God says he hates? Who is Jesus to forgive sins? What are sins? Oftentimes, we feel like we have the right to determine what is right and wrong. Not someone outside of us. We feel like that we are in the center of our world, our universe, and we can tell God, or anybody else for that matter, what is right and what is wrong. If I want to sleep with someone who's not my husband or my wife, it's my right. I'll do what I want. That's opposition to Jesus' authority. Even his authority to forgive sins. Another way we may object to Christ's authority to forgive sins is that maybe we need to go through somebody special before we can have our sins forgiven. 
We see this, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church. You have to go through a priest to get your sins forgiven. A mediator. Someone who is kind of a go-between between you and God. Opposition to Jesus' authority to forgive sins. But just like the scribes' objections, Jesus silences them all. Jesus tells us that our sins are actually worse than we ever thought they were. He helps us to see the ugliness, the nastiness of our sins. The more I walk with God, the more I see the heinousness of my sin. It's not that I see it less, it's that I see it more. I see how bad it actually is to sin against my heavenly Father. My sins are worse than I dared ever imagine. See, Jesus also tells us that God's judgment is more severe than we could ever imagine. And that we do need forgiveness of sins. And that the only one who can do that is Jesus. We don't need some mediator, some human mediator, to go between us and God to forgive us of our sins. We don't need to go and make other sacrifices, as it were, like from the Old Testament. We need to go directly to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus reminds us that, that he has the authority to forgive our sins. See, not much has changed since the day of Jesus in a lot of ways. There still are many that object to the authority of Jesus and the authority of Jesus to forgive sin. And yet, still this day, we can all give testimony to the ways where Jesus is bringing healing. He is showing us his kingdom here in Atlantic City as he heals and as he saves and as he brings his kingdom physically and spiritually and in every other way. See, we see even here today that Jesus is ushering in his kingdom in the lives of those sitting here with us today. He's doing that step by step, bit by bit. He is growing his kingdom. That will be full one day. He will come back as we sing. He's coming back again. We know that. We believe that. We look forward to that day. And what we see here in Mark 2 is a glimpse, just a small glimpse of what Jesus is going to do in full in the future. And what we need to do today as God's people is set our eyes on that and pray God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, that will come true fully. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for this day. God, we thank you for your word from Mark 2. God, surely we came into this message today, into church today, all over the place, um, different places some of us feeling up, some of us feeling down, some of us feeling um, overwhelmed, and burdened, some of us being thankful for the ways you've done uh, great and mighty things in our lives. And yet, Lord, we come and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are building your kingdom, that nothing can stop, that not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. God, you are bursting forth your kingdom in our lives and, and really all over the world. Thank you for the healing that you bring. We pray that you would continue to bring healing in our lives 
and the lives of those that we know and live with in our city. And we pray, Lord, that you would have your kingdom come here in Atlantic City, on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.